Bible studies or anything like that. Uh, I'd like to share just a few things with you. I'm not really sure how to start this thing off. I'm just going to talk about what I know. Heavenly Father, we come to you once again, and we thank you for the privilege it is to gather as your people, uh, to gather around the proclamation of your word in these times and to have the opportunity to preach the word and to pay attention to the public reading of scripture and desire how to work through your word to bring us to know it and to live it. Father, we thank you for your family that we have assembled now for Eric and Jennifer Winkleman. How about now? All right. All right. Well, I'm going to make sure that I drag this out as long as I can so that the youth will wait in anticipation for their camp. <laughs> um, so I am reading from uh, Psalm 95. Um, so if you guys don't mind, uh, please stand for the reading of the word as we open up. So Psalm 95. O come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout joyfully to the rock, our salvation. Let us come before his presence with thanksgiving. Let us shout joyfully to him with psalms. For the Lord is a great God and a king and a great king above all gods and whose hands are the depths of the earth. The peaks of the mountains are his also. The sea is his for it was he who made it and his hands formed the dry land. Come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our maker, for he is our God, and we are the people of his pastor and the sheep of his hand. Today, if you would hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as in the days of Massah in the wilderness. When your fathers tested me, they tried me, though they had seen my work. For 40 years I loathed that generation and said that they are a people who err in their heart and they do not know my ways. Therefore, I swore in my anger, truly, they shall not enter my rest. Let us pray. Uh, Father, we give you great thanks for your word, your recorded word for us to worship you through the reading of your word. May you open up our hearts. May we be receptive to the message that you have for us today. May we leave edified knowing that you are a God worthy of worship, worthy of our lives to be consecrated unto you. May we leave as a different people, different from society, different from the culture. May we stand out as your people, as the people of your pastor with you as our shepherd. May you be glorified in uh, your teaching this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. All right, so as I, as I was introduced last week, if you was here, I was introduced as a graphic designer, as a 
a designer that designs for the retail world, given the area that we're in, so it should not be a surprise. We live in a retail capital of the world. Um, I do a lot of product design, um, anywhere from product development, helping clients formulate their product, helping them name their product, helping them create a brand identity and a marketing behind that product all the way up to the package design, how it's displayed in the stores. Uh, I even follow up with post shopper uh, messaging and uh, images online, things of that nature. So whenever I was reading this psalm, my marketing mind uh, switched on and I noticed that, th that there's a certain formula, a certain pattern to Psalm 95. It reminded me of what is called a sharper conversion messaging. And we're all familiar with that. Uh, anytime that you go into the store and you see a messaging that is on the shelf strip, anytime you see the messaging on a display or a signage that calls you to buy something, sometimes you'll see it on a coupon. Um, these are called sharper conversion messaging meant to take the ordinary person and convert them into a shopper of buying their product. An example of this, and I'm just, I just created this for the sake of this teaching, so don't Google it because it does not exist. I made it up for this teaching. So an example of a shopper conversion messaging would be buy Colgate today for a healthier, cleaner smile. So it is, uh, it sounds simplistic, buy Colgate today for a healthier, cleaner smile, but do not take it as a simple message because there is a lot of effort that goes into creating shopper marketing conversion messaging. Um, there is hours of teamwork between designers and marketers. Uh, sometimes it lasts for weeks because uh, there is a certain formula that it has to hit to convert people into shoppers. Um, and what is this formula? Well, I'm glad that you asked. A, uh, within a sharper conversion messaging, the formula is that it has to have an urgency to that message, has to have a call to action to that message, and it also has to have a reason to buy the benefits behind it. Why uh, would I buy this product? So if we look at the, uh, the hypothetical sharper conversion messaging that I created, buy Colgate today for a healthier, cleaner smile, uh, when we break that down, the, uh, the call to action, and it's not always in this order, but it has to have those three elements. So the buy Colgate is the call to action. You could be simply walking through the aisle, not realize that you need this product until you read buy Colgate, and you're like, oh yeah, I need that product. I'm out of toothpaste. So it's calling your attention to a call to action, but it's saying buy Colgate today. There, there's an urgency to buy it because you need it today because you just realize that you're out of it. Um, you need it today because it might fly off the shelf and not uh, be available for tomorrow. So there's that urgency. Buy Colgate, the call to action, today, the uh, urgency. But why? Well, for a healthier, cleaner smile. Who doesn't want that benefit? Who doesn't want the benefit of the product? So therefore, the common person walking down the aisle is now converted into a shopper taking that item. So why am I mentioning this? What does this have to do with Psalm 95? Why are you uh, mixing in your marketing into uh, the word of God? Well, I'll tell you why. 
Because like I said, as I was reading and preparing for this, I noticed that there is a very similar pattern to this psalm, to Psalm 95. There is an urgency to this psalm. There is a call to action to this psalm. And there's also a reason to buy, or in other words, uh, a reason to worship. So I have renamed this to a worshiper conversion message. (laughs) So Psalm 95, in my Bible, it says, praise to the Lord and a warning against unbelief. Well, that is the reason, that is the call to action, that is the reason that we should be converted into worshipers of God. So this is how it's broken down. The first message, and there's three messages within this, there's three worshiper conversion messages within Psalm 95. The first message is found in verses 1 through 5, and it begins with, O come. The second worshiper conversion message is found in verses 6 through 7a, and that also begins with, come. And then the third message is found in 7b through 11, and that begins with today. Today, if you would hear his voice. So that is how the psalm is broken up. That's how I'm uh, organizing it for this uh, lesson. So we got three worship conversion messages. So that's my introduction, a lengthy introduction, but it, it sets up the tone. It sets up how we are to look at this, and it sets up exactly how we are to receive this message uh, this morning. So let's look at the first worship conversion message, uh, one through five. So verse one, it says, O come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout joyfully to the rock, our salvation. So this verse begins with the urgency of the message, O come. This urgency is calling us to stop whatever we are doing and to come and worship God. The urgency of right now, today, This invitation of worship is calling us to examine the urgency to worship right now. Without delay, stop what we are doing and count everything else secondary to this call to worship. It is uh, an urgency to realize that whatever we are doing is secondary to a greater call to worship God. Everything that we are doing is mundane. Everything that we are doing is not as important. It is not at the highest level of our calling, which is to worship God. It says, oh, come without delay to count everything secondary to the call of action. And what is the call to action in this message? Why the urgency of O Come right now? Well, we are invited to sing for joy to the Lord. It's a, it's a song. It's a, it's a joy. It's a singing unto the Lord. It's an urgency to stop right now to sing for him, to let us cry out and overcome our mundane task, our mundane daily task, and express our deepest feeling with a heart cry unto God, Jehovah. This is a sacrifice of worship. To stop what we are doing is a sacrifice. You are called to stop, to come, to gather together, exactly what we're doing today, to gather together as God's church 
into in the place of worship. And um, I don't mean to step on any toes, so I'm going to let John MacArthur do it. He said, he said that, and I'm going to paraphrase him, Zoom church is not church. The gathering of God's people to come together, to stop whatever they're doing, to give that time as a first fruits of the week to worship God. He is saying, come. Zoom church is not church. Now, I understand that there are some need for it. I am blessed by it at times when we are sick, when my child is being unruly, whatever the cause is, there is purpose, there is a reason to, you know, Zoom into church. I've Zoomed into church, but it's not church. We are called to come, to gather together as church, to lift up praises unto God. Let us cry out and overcome all our mundane daily tasks and express our deepest feeling with a heart cry unto God Jehovah. This is a sacrifice of worship to stop what we do, are doing and make a deliberate choice to regard everything else as uh, secondary, as being inferior to a greater task, a greater call to action, a call to worship God. It also says, let us shout joyfully. Let us shout joyfully to the rock of our salvation. Now the bar has been raised. We went from singing for joy to shouting joyfully. The bar has been raised. This is a triumphant blast of victorious worship after recognizing who that we sing to. This trumpet blast of victorious worship, it elevates from a heart cry to a battle cry, to shout joyfully. This is a sound of a conquering worship that drowns out the daily mundane task that we were asked to leave to come to worship. This is a, now we are overcome by the worship of God who desires no less than our worship, but deserves all the more. And why? Why does he deserve all the more? Why is, this, uh, is there an urgency to this message? Why the call to action to worship? And it says, because he is the rock of our salvation. The refuge of our salvation. God is our abiding, immutable, and mighty rock. In him, we find deliverance and safety. That alone should cause us to worship. That alone is all that we need to worship God. But knowing the depths of his character, knowing the depths of who he is, we are provided a lot more reason. <laughs> Second Samuel chapter 22, verse 3 says, My God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold and my refuge, my Savior, you save me from violence. Therefore, we are called to praise him with a heart cry, a battle cry from day to day, and especially as we gather, as we are today, right now, at this moment. And do we do that? I say let us spur one another along to worship, uh, to set aside this day as the first fruit of our week to worship God so that all other days will follow suit. But let's do this out of sincerity and without hypocrisy, but laying aside the sin that so easily entangles us, let us stop our mundane task and together worship God, Jehovah. Verse 2, 
Let us come before his presence with thanksgiving. Let us shout joyfully to him with psalms. So this here may be in reference to the presence of God in the Holy of Holies, his Shekinah glory that rested upon the tabernacle. But there is a peculiar presence of grace and glory to which we are called and should never come to without the reverence of thanksgiving. We are to come with thanksgiving. And you may say, well, I don't have anything to be thankful for. I did not get that promotion at work. I did not get that raise. School is about to start in a few weeks. I have nothing to be thankful for. Everything's falling, up, uh, uh, you know, falling out around me. Woe is me. But I say to you, did you not wake up with breath in your lungs? Did you not wake up with a spark of life in your soul? Did you not wake up underneath the canopy of his creation? I say we have the common graces of God to be thankful for. There should be nothing in us to stop us from giving thanks to the Lord. We are not to enter his presence without thanksgiving, without the reverence of thanksgiving. For we are called and invited by the Spirit of God to stand boldly in his presence before the Lord to come and meet him face to face and offer a sacrifice of praise, of thanksgiving. Thanksgiving for who God is despite man, despite us, despite how we feel, despite our shortcomings, despite the circumstances we are in, we are to come in his presence with thanksgiving, thankful for who he is. For we are depended upon his grace and giving. For we need his presence as a reminder of where our blessings come from. We need to come before him in his presence to remind us to be thankful for what we already have. For I lift my eyes up into the mountains, for where shall my help come from? But it comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. And when we are drawn near to him, we are commanded to confess his goodness. And not with just thanksgiving, but with a shout, a declaration of joy to be poured out unto him with an exclamation of triumph, for he is good, he is holy, and he is to be glorified. Our thanksgiving should also reflect our minds upon the past and the future. We are to remember what he has already blessed us with. We should recount all those times that he has been faithful and a good shepherd unto us. We are to remember that. Never forget who God is and what he has done. So that way we can stay in humble state of expectation for what he will do for us in the future. For when we reasonably look into the future of his providence, we stay dependent upon him. And, when, and we are to rejoice when? Always. Pray without what? Ceasing. And in everything, do what? Give thanks. Now, my dear church family, it is not always easy to unite the reverence of thanksgiving with the enthusiasm of joy. It is not always easy to do that. But I tell you this, that it is the perfection of song and hymns that does this for us. We are called to joyfully shout to him with psalms. It is that that helps us unify the two, the reverence of thanksgiving and 
the uh, exclamation of joy. Singing a joyful melody unto God unites both. It unites, it unites joy with gravity, exaltation to humility, fervency with sobriety. And we cannot divorce the two, the enthusiasm of joy with the reverence of thanksgiving. For these two united gives us a great reason to shout joyfully unto God. For his statutes are my songs in the house of my pilgrimage. So we are to sing for joy. We are to shout joyfully. We are to come before him with thanksgiving. And we are to shout joyfully with psalms. And why? Why uh, this call to action? What benefit is there? Why are we called with this urgency? And we find this in verse 3. For the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. Again, I can stop there, and that is enough. Because Jehovah, the existing one, is large in magnitude and extent. And that's what the psalmist means when he writes, for the Lord is a great God. He is large in magnitude and extent. He is a great king beyond preeminence, far exceeding all rulers, judges, divine ones, or powers. So you see, the surrounding nations at that time imagined Jehovah as a local deity to a small people group in a small nation and inferior to the other gods of the surrounding areas and to the in, inferior to the other rulers and the powers. But on the contrary, God, he manages them all and serves his purpose by them and to him for they are all accountable to him. He is not just some local deity. He is the king of kings, the Lord of lords, great in magnitude and extent. He is, our, he is great, for he is all in all. He is a great king above all other powers, whether angels or princes, for they own their existence to him. And this verse and the following gives us reason to worship, drawn from the greatness and sovereign dominion of Jehovah. Verse 4, in whose hands are the depths of the earth, the peaks of the mountains are his also. And we see here that God is not merely a local God, a local deity, as thought about the surrounding nations, but his presence fills the earth. From the depths of the oceans beyond our reach to the peaks of the mountains beyond our sight, we are to worship him, for he has great possession and dominion far greater than the kings of the earth. And such possession is under his power, his strength, his mighty hand. The whole earth is not just under his feet, but he created, he directed, and he disposes all by his hand. The Lord rules upon the high places of earth in lowly majesty. He does not share his rule. He does not divide his territories up to be, kings, uh, to be kingdoms. He rules alone the whole earth. And in this, we see 
characteristics of God that no other king of earth possesses. We see his omnipotence, if I'm pronouncing that correctly, for he is all-powerful. He is omniscient, for he knows all events that happens on the earth. He understands and knows the microisms and the depths of the sea. He understands and knows when the high eagle perches upon the, the mountain. He knows when the leaf falls in the Ozark Mountains, and he knows you and I. He knows our circumstances. Nothing is uh, left beyond his knowledge. He knows all events on earth. He is omnipresent, for his divine presence encompasses the whole earth. Verse 5, the sea is his, for it was he who made it and his hands formed the dry land. See, God is to be worshipped, for he is the creator. He's not a local deity, you know, bound down to the needs of, of the people. No, he is to be worshipped, for he is, create, he is the creator. Hence, his right and his sovereignty. We witness his rightful rule over his creation as the creator in Genesis chapter 1, 9 through 13. That tells us when he marked the third day with the formation of the sea and the dry land. And with the command of his voice, he said, let waters below the heavens be gathered into one place, let the dry land appear, and it was so. <laughs> Verse 10, God called the dry land earth, and the gathering of the waters he called seas, and God saw that it was good. See, not only is God the rightful owner of his possession, but he displays his authority over creation by naming it. He said, you are sea. You are earth. He's taking ownership of it. He is naming it. We are to worship him for he is the creator. Verse 11, then God said, let the earth sprout vegetation Plants yielding seed and fruit trees on the earth bearing fruit after their own kind with seed in them, and it was so. Then we see the obedience of his creation. We see the obedience of his creation. Verse 12, the earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed after their kind, and trees bearing fruit with seed in them after their kind, and God saw that it was good. The obedience. He commanded the earth to be formed. He named the earth. He named the seas, demonstrating his authority over it. And his creation obeyed him, bearing fruit with the purpose that he has given them. He is the creator, and the creation obeyed him. With his hand, he scooped the depths of the earth and poured forth the waters of the oceans. With his finger, he marked out the boundaries of the seas. The fertile field and the bountiful bush is fruitful by his word. They obeyed him. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. So let us all come and worship our great king and count all of creation as the tabernacle of our visible God. This is the cause to worship. This should inspire us to sing for joy to the Lord. This should move us to gather before his presence with thanksgiving and reverence. 
we have a lot to be thankful for despite our circumstances. When we gather, we have a lot to be thankful for. And as the jewel of his creation, should we not also obey him? Should we not also see what purpose he has given to us to worship him and obey him? Will we not submit to his invitation to worship? Is this not what we do when we gather to sing psalms, to sing hymns, and to look into his word? My dear brothers and sisters, do not simply pass through the aisles of your life and overlook the message to call to worship. Do not quench the working of the Spirit as he converts you into a worshiper of God. And that is the first worshiper conversion messaging that we find in this psalm. The second one is verses 6 and 7a. That's the second worship conversion messaging. So in verse 6, as we begin the second one, it says, Come, again, come. Come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before God, the Lord our Maker. See, You see, the urgency to come is renewed. The exhortation to come is, again, a second time renewed. The urgency to stop the task at hand and come and worship. This urgency to come is backed with another call to action, to worship and to bow down. The adoration of worship is to be in humble submission. The worship of God in hymns and psalms should be in a state that indicates that we in his presence are nothing. We are nothing in the presence of the all-glorious Lord. The funny thing is, and I made a connection, I've been going through the Fundamentals of the Faith by John MacArthur, who has been, who's been through that. If you haven't, I encourage you to go through it. Don't let the name uh, dis, you know, discourage you from it. It is the Fundamentals of the Faith, but even as seasoned Christians and followers of Christ, it's always good to renew the fundamentals because we are called to evangelize and it will equip us to do so. But as I've been going through this, through the workbook on page 68, John MacArthur gives a brief description of what worship is. He says on page 68, quote, the English word worship originally was spelled worth-ship, W-O-R-T-H, ship, worth-ship, meaning to acknowledge the worth of someone or something. We worship when we give honor to God for who he is. We worship, wait, worship acknowledges God's person, his nature, his attributes, his works. It stems from a grateful heart and renders adoration, devotion, and submission to God. End quote. See, the songs that we lift up to him each Sunday morning should not be man-centered, but God-centered. We are to come with a bowed knee. We are to come in submission to him. I don't know about you, but I am sick of contemporary Christian music. It is sold out to the industry and not sold out to God. I was thinking as I was preparing for this, as an example, 
and I don't mean to call out names, but if you would guess Elevation Worship, then you would guess correctly. There is a song that they sing, I will see a victory. Oh, I will see a victory, right? But the thing is, is it's not about us. It's about who we get the victory from. It's not about being man-centered. It's all about him. We are to come with a bowed knee, submitting to God. If all creation obeys him, why would we not do the same? Songs should be doctrine. Songs should be scripture. A song should be God-centered. Let our hearts be prostrated and laid bare before our maker. Psalm 51, 16 and 17 says, For you do not delight in sacrifice, or else I would give it. You are not pleased with burnt offerings. Verse 17, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, one that is kneeled down before him in submission. A broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Romans 12, verse 1 says, Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, not by man and our accomplishments, but by the mercies of God to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice. Worship is to be lived out, not just a chore on Sunday morning, not just a thing that you do and then you go home for lunch and you forget what you've done. You are to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is what? Your spiritual service of worship. Of worship. So I'm asking you, why is there such a humbleness required in our worship? Why are we required to come before his presence with a bowed knee in submission to God? Well, verse 7 is the reason. Verse 7a is the reason to worship. It says in 7a, For he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. We are to come and bow down before him because we do not belong to ourselves. He is our shepherd. He, we are his people, the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. That's why we don't belong to ourselves. We worship Jehovah because he entered into a covenant with us and chose us as his elect. We do not belong to ourselves. If others refuse him worship, we at least will give it joyfully. He is our God, and happy is the man that's, that believes this in reverence of himself. And as he belongs to us, so do we belong to him, for we are the people of his pastor and the sheep of his hand. See, the word pastor here literally means pastoring. It means pastoring, a belonging. We are his flock that he shepherds, that he feeds, that he supplies. He is the good shepherd, and he knows his own, and his own knows him. And he is the springs of all our joys. For we draw all of our supply from him. We are the sheep and the people of his pastor. He is pastoring us. And as the sheep belong to the shepherd, his hand guides us. His strength is our means, and we can fully trust him. 
Oh, Psalm 23 was mentioned this morning, verses 1 through 4. I'm going to quickly go there. I did not type it out. So Psalm 23. For this echoes God's heart of his shepherding. This echoes that we do not belong to ourselves, but we belong to him. It's taken me longer than usual to get to Psalm 23. <laughs> I just don't want to misquote it. So Psalm 23, 1 through 4. The Lord is my shepherd and I shall not want. He is shepherding us. We are the people of his pastor. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me he leads me besides quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in the path of righteousness for his name's sake, not for man-centered worship, for his name's sake. Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff they comfort me. He is our shepherd pastoring us. We are to draw all of our supply from him. We can fully trust in him. And, and this is the great cause for us to be in humble reverence to him and to bow down in submission and in need of him because he is our shepherd. Now I stopped at the first part of seven, because this finishes the second worshiper conversion message. The urgency, come. The call to action, worship in lowliness of heart and kneeling down before our maker. And the reason, because he is our God and has chosen us as his sheep to care and supply our needs while he guides us with his strength. Now, as I was analyzing this, uh, this psalm, the call to worship God is, re is a repeated call. We see it twice with the word come. Two messages that cause us to come before God to worship him. And as we know, if God says something twice, truly, truly, we should give our earnest heed. We should stop and consider what is he saying to us? Why the repeated call? Why is he calling his people to sing for joy in, the pres in his presence and to worship him and to bow down? Well, he tells us why. There is a third message in this psalm, in Psalm 95. But this third message is a warning against unbelief. A warning not to heed his call to action, not to come before him in worship. You see, this is a warning to unbelievers not worshiping God. And why do I say that? Because the church is filled with people that are not worshiping proper, the God of creation. Therefore, I would question, are they truly believers? So this is a warning to unbelievers not worshiping God, and it's a warning to us believers to continue to worship God in proper ways. You see, the third message, this warning, 
is found in verses 7b through 11. So 7b says, Today, if you would hear his voice, verse 8, do not harden your hearts as in Meribah, as in the days of Massah in the wilderness. Now, if you guys have been paying attention, you're starting to see the analytical aspects of a worshiper conversion message. So there is an urgency to this. Do you guys know what it is? Today, yes. The urgency at the beginning of this warning is today. Now, with no delay. There is no delay in today. <laughs> at this very moment, or at the very moment that you hear the voice of God speaking to you. Today, right now. 2 Corinthians 6.2 says, For he says, At the acceptable time I listened to you, and on the day of salvation I helped you. Behold, now is the acceptable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. And Charles Spurgeon says about 2 Corinthians 6.2, he says, The most of men procrastinate. And it's not that they would resolve to be damned, but they resolve to be saved tomorrow. It is not that they reject Christ forever, but that they reject Christ today. And truly, they might as well reject him forever as continue perpetually to reject him now, end quote. And I say, if you guys want to talk about now, if you guys want to talk about this very moment, the now, right now, there are souls in hell who have rejected Christ yesterday. We are told today, today, if you would hear his voice. So what does it mean to hear his voice? What does that mean? It's not just simply reading his word. It's not just hearing a message. It's not just simply going to church or reading your Bible, though you do hear God through his word. But to hear his voice means to hear intelligently with the implication and attention to obedience. How many times as parents have we scolded our children has, and have course corrected them, told them a commandment, and what do we say to them? What did I say? Repeat it back to me. And why do we say this? Because we want them not just to hear what we're saying, for it to go in one ear out the other, but we say it with them and with an expectation that they obey us. And that's what it means right here, to hear his voice. This is an exhortation to, th uh, to those that are singing his praise or claim to be his, to live lives worthy of the gospel. The required duty of those that are the sheep of his pastor is to hear his voice with obedience. It's an expectation. It's not an advice. It's not a self-help tip to better your life. This is an expectation to hear his voice with obedience. We may say that we are the sheep, his sheep, his people. Well, are we? Are we his sheep? Are we the people of his pastor? Then I would encourage all of us to hear his voice in obedience. Hear the voice of the Lord 
hear his doctrine, hear his law, and in both hear his spirit. Today, while he is speaking to you, attend to him. For this day will not always last. Attend to him. Hebrews 3.13 says, wait, three, Hebrews 3.13 tells us to encourage one another day after day, as long as it's still called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Today, if by faith you hear his voice through obedience to the gospel call, you do well. But tomorrow may be too late. And nothing is more dangerous than delay. Today, if you hear his voice. Verse 8. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as in the day of Massah in the wilderness. See, we cannot soften our hearts. Only God does that. But we can harden our hearts. If we hear his voice, it means God's mercies are available to you. You may think that you've wandered away too far. You may think that the, the, the sins that you have committed is causing you not to hear his voice. But I'm telling you, if you hear his voice, that means his mercies are available. So do not harden your hearts against his mercies. And an example is at Meribah and Massah, or translated as rebellion or a place of strife, the place where Israel rebelled against Lord in the wilderness. And I say, do we have those places? Do we have those places of wilderness in our hearts that we're keeping from God and not obeying his voice? Do we journey through our wilderness of strife? Any obedience is strife against God or any disobedience is strife against God. Let us not willingly repeat the rebellionness that Israel is set, at, uh, set aside as an example. Let the example of that generation be a beacon to us not to repeat the offense. Remember, God remembered their sin. And how grievous is the sin committed by those who are called by God. See, this verse is for us, especially for us who are called, who are, especially for us who call ourselves the people of his pastor. Do not harden your hearts and turn aside this warning. We have good need of this warning. In verse 9, when your fathers tested me, they tried me, though they had seen my work. See, in verse 9, we again are given a call to action. We are given a call to action through an example of a heart who hears the voice of the Lord but becomes hardened by an act of disobedience. And this time, through the testing of the Lord, with the, when the Israelites quarreled with Moses and said that he brought them out of Egypt just to kill them in the wilderness with thirst, how many times have we heard a call of God directing us in obedience and we have said, oh Lord, why have you done this to us? You have just brought me out here to kill me with thirst. 
See, Israel, they forgot the blessing and deliverance of God and his works by his performance that brought them about the salvation of his, uh, of his people from slavery. Their hardened hearts calloused over their remembrance of God's providence and will. So then as far as they could, they tempted God to change his way, his will, and to do their bidding. And so again, have we ever been in our own wilderness of strife saying, God, why have you done this? Why have you brought me out here? Did you kill? Did you bring me out here to kill me with thirst? Therefore, I pray that you would change this situation for my comfort. See, the hardness of their hearts was calloused over. It calloused over their remembrance of God. See, that's why we come to him, remembering him for what he has done in the past with thanksgiving. Their hardened hearts calloused over their remembrance of God's providence and will. So then as far as they could, they tempted God to change his ways. His plan for them and for us today is perfect. And when we would have him alter his will to please us, we are guilty of tempting God. There are times that we ask for things from God that we do not have because we ask them with the wrong motives so that way we may spend it on our own pleasures instead of believing in God. And when we are, we are in the most danger in times of need, for that is when we are apt to fall in unbelief and damage a chance in the providence of God's holy wisdom. We ask God to change our circumstances to please our comforts instead of trusting him and seeking out his perfect will. What we ought to do is to come to him with thanksgiving, with praise of his works and provision. We should remember Remember, call back to memory. We should remember what God has done for us in times of need and how he has rescued us. Let us not forget his wondrous works and fall into the same sin of unbelief. For this leads us to tempt God by asking for a change of his will to comfort us. May we not ask God to conform to our will, but let us be conformed to his purpose and his will, for he is our God, and we are to forever praise him. So why do we have this urgency of today, today if we hear his voice, to listen intentively and obey? Why do we have that urgency? Why the call to action not to harden your hearts as at Meribah, as in the days of Massah in the wilderness? What is the reason behind this message? Well, it can be found in verse 10 and 11. Verse 10, for 40 years I loathed that generation and said they are a people who err in their heart and they do not know my ways. See, this is no small thing. It is no small thing that can grieve or disgust a long-suffering God. For 40 years, he has dealt with their murmuring. He has provided for them. They had sandals on their feet for 40 years that did not give away. 
He provided them manna from heaven. He provided them water from the rock. He guided them with a pillar of fire and smoke. He was a long-suffering God. God showed tender patience to a nation that erred in their heart. Not just an unbelieving person here or there, but a nation as a whole. Time and time again, his providence proved his love and compassion toward his people, though he knew the condition of their hearts, and yet he was patient. And they erred in their hearts. Their hearts wandered and were led astray due to their unbelief. Their hearts, see, the heart of a man springs forth from man, and where the heart goes, so goes the whole of man. The entire nature is thrown out of sorts. This hardened unbelief blinded them from the daily provision that God sent their way, from the manna from heaven, from the uh, water in the rock. This deep-rooted depravity, depravity caused them not to know his ways, caused them not to see the works that he was doing in them. And I say, are we any better than they? Do we enjoy in vain the daily pleasures of his grace? Or do we come to him and to his presence with thanksgiving and praise? Which people are we? Do not count his provisions and his grace as a right, as if we deserve it. It's not a right. We deserve not his merciful hand, nor his providence, and yet he is kind to us. Therefore, let us count the cost of sacrificial worship and bow down to our king in true adoration, or else we will suffer the same fate as those who did not find Verse 11, therefore I swore in my anger, truly they shall not enter into my rest. You see, there can never be any true rest in an unbelieving heart. If the daily common graces of God do not drive us into a thankful adoration and praises of our great God, neither will we be content and joyful with the promise of his rest. If our hearts wander in disbelief and doubt now as he as we experience his merciful patience, will not our hearts strive with him in any future providence? Today, if we hear his voice, we should take the time to resolve any unbelief in our hearts. And how do we do this? By intensively heeding the voice of God and obeying and abiding in his word. You see, God didn't just merely warn them. He d- it wasn't an empty threat. Going back to my uh, analogy of, of scolding my kids, I have to admit, most of the time it's an it's a empty threat. <laughs> I'm terrible. But see, God didn't just merely warn them. It's not an empty threat, but he swore He made an oath of absolute certainty, absolute certainty that they would not enter his rest. It's not an empty threat, my friend. And this is a sobering warning to us all who leave the path of faith for the murmuring of mistrust. 
but let us not overlook from this psalm that there is indeed a rest. There is indeed a rest of God, and some may enter into it. We read in Hebrews 4, chapter, or for, uh, Hebrews chapter 4, verse 1, Therefore, let us fear, if while a promise remains of entering his rest, any one of you may seem to have come short of it. If you and I have received the good news of his gospel, let us not harden our hearts with doubts of his promise and with the unbelief of his goodness. But may the hearing of his voice be united in faith. And as verse 11 of Hebrews 4 says, let us be diligent to enter that rest so that no one will fall through following the same example of disobedience. Now, as I wrap up, I want to go ahead and review these three worship conversion messages found in Psalm 95. But I'm going to review it in reverse order. That was all my introduction. Just kidding. <laughs> but I'm going to review it in reverse order because the funny thing about chakra conversion messaging is the psychology behind it allows it to be read in reverse. It's true one way, it's true the other. For example, if you remember from earlier, the uh, chakra conversion messaging that I created for this message, buy Colgate today for a healthier, cleaner smile, it is also true in reverse order. For a healthier, cleaner smile today, buy Colgate. Well, the same applies for this message in Psalm 95. If you want to find rest and peace with God, do not harden your hearts if you are hearing his voice today. But come, come, a repeated call. Let us worship and bow down before our king. Let us come before his presence with thanksgiving. Let us shout joyfully to our Savior. Oh, come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us pray. Dear Father, we thank you for this message. We thank you for the love that you have bestowed upon us, that you are giving us a warning, that you have set before us an example of, of how to come before you, of how to worship you in the contrite and lowly spirit, broken and laid before you in lowliness of heart. May we remember your faithfulness unto us. May we remember that you are the creator, that we owe you everything, Father. And may we never stray from you. May your will for us be evident in our lives. And may by your spirit that you cause us to, uh, to remember the blessings that you have bestowed upon us. May we always be faithful in believing your word worshiping you in spirit and in truth. We pray this with thankfulness, with adoration. May we be laid bare before you. We thank you, O oh Father, that we are the people of your pasture, that you are our shepherd, that you take great care of us, and that alone should cause us to worship you. We praise you in, in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.